לשידור ישיר ממחנה רמה בברקשיירס. Welcome to another edition of Parsha Talk. I'm Rabbi Elliot Bellman in Highland Park at the Highland Park Conservative Double Congregation on Shemet. Joining me, my good friends, Rabbi Barry Chesler, Solomon Shek to Day School of Long Island, Rabbi Jeremy Kalmanovsky of Anshay Chesed in New York City. It's great to see you both. We have an amazing Parsha, as we do always, Parsha Mishpatim. If Parsha Yitro wasn't good enough, didn't give us enough mitzvot, now comes Mishpatim. And it starts, Ve'ele ha-mishpatim, Ve'ele ha-mishpatim, and these are the, translate mishpatim for me. Barry, mishpatim, well, statutes? Conventionally, there are laws that can be explained. Rational law. Okay. And the the place of this of the laws in the order of the Torah now is after the, the great moment at Sinai, the moment in which I would read it as, the people were terrified. They didn't really hear what was going on. And they said, Moses, we can't handle it. You, you, you go up. You talk, to, you talk to God. And Moses talks to God. And, and, and in, the, um, in the experience, this is what is being conveyed to Moses. Barry, the first Rashi on this kind of extends and, and kind of makes the argument for us that this is a continuation. Just want to shape are thinking about this Parsha with that first Rashi. So the first, Rashi picks up on the very first word, Ba'ela, and he notes that, When the text uses the word Ela, that's to invalidate what's going to come afterwards. When it says Ba'ela, it's going to add what came, what came before it. So that the way Rashi is reading the juxtaposition of Yitro and Mishpatim, the revelation at Mount Sinai, the giving of the Ten Commandments, and the Mishpatim, the parsha that comes afterwards, is part of the Sinai revelation as well. Great. So, so this is in, in part of the part of the Sinai revelation. I would also add that then homiletically, in a way, it says it validates the idea that. The, the potential for successive generations to be better than the first generation. Of course, I used that idea at my son's bar mitzvah, which was this parsha. Okay, the first, the first content. You know, the first, this, uh, wait, before we do the first, before we do the first verse and the first Rashi on the first verse, or I think it's actually the second Rashi. Uh, you shall place before them and. And uh, as a matter of fact, the um, the word lasim, the, the expression to place before somebody is typically um, uh, about like putting food, like serving food. And Rashi says about this: You should Moses, you know, you're going to teach these people. You're not just going to mention it and tell them to look it up. You're going to really teach them, teach them two times, three times, four times, you, until you put them before them, kishulchan aruch, yeah, like a set table. And that's that's where the um, 
obviously where the the major Jewish love. I, I think this. I think Rashi says it, but I think it's a, it's a midrash. But uh, it's from the Mechelta. It's you're drawing on the earlier midrash, but this is this example of that beautiful turn of phrase that reverberates through reverberates through Jewish literature. This is the out. This is the Shulchan Aruch. This is the these are the laws set before you, so you know how to how to live as a Jew. So, what do you make of the fact that the first uh, subject that the uh, parsha deals with is the Eved Ivri, Kitikne Eved Ivri. If you acquire a Hebrew slave, Sheshanim Yavod, the slave will work for you for six years, Uvashviit, Yetse Lachovshi Chinam. And on the seventh year, the slave will go uh, free. So, what do you make of the fact that, that this is the first law of what we call the covenant code, after which, after the experience of Sinai and the experience of Yitzhiat Mitzrayim. Barry, you have a thought about that? Yes. So I think that what's important to note here is that the Torah is not talking about the institution of slavery, but about someone whose circumstance has led them into slavery. And suddenly slavery can become the answer to the problem rather than the problem itself. The Torah here doesn't condemn what chattel slavery, which we know from our pre-Civil War period, but is talking about individuals who might see themselves as as be, might see themselves become slaves because of circumstances sometimes beyond their control, and that could be seen to be appealing. And the Torah circumscribes this because slavery is not a good thing for the Israelite people. The meaning of the Exodus, and this is going to come up a couple of times in the Parsha, is that no one, sh- well, no Israelite should ever be a slave. Jeremy, yeah, I, I don't entirely agree with that because, because um, I, I think that, okay, first of all, you are uh, certainly 100% correct that that this, we're not talking about chattel slavery. Uh, nobody should be happy about this, but in the end of you know, the book of Leviticus, it explains that you can have chattel slavery of non-Jews, but you are limited, you know, as Maimonides says, uh, the Torah permits something that is is uh, not optimal behavior, and hopefully it'll educate us to move beyond that. That's Maimonides' interpretation of chattel slavery. But I think that this part is, is not is not valenced uh, negatively. In fact, I think it's valenced positively because, as you said correctly, the Israelites, the Israelites said, we don't, we don't want people to have to be in economic straits. We don't want people to be desperately poor. We don't want people to have to go to, to, to imprisonment as debt slavery. But when those things happen, and this is a very realistic book, right? Like the Torah is not a, 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 a utopian book. It's a realistic book. And there's going to be wealth, and there's going to be poverty, and there's going to be serious debt. And wealthy people, you've got to take care of the the crisis, people in crisis. So no, it's not good. And no, you shouldn't just opt for slavery. But in the realities of people suffering, um, if there's going to be debt slavery, and there is, uh, you have to treat it, you have to reshape it so it's a benevolent institution in which rich people take care of poor people. So I want to add... So what I, go ahead. Go ahead. I, I just no. wanted to add to what you said, Jeremy, that we often think of these laws here as being uh, a limitation on the slave owner, on the master. And I think we have to keep in mind that they're also directed to the Israelite slave as well. So your comments were 
certainly on the mark. But I think that part of what's going on here is that the Israelite slave is being addressed too. He can only be a slave for six years, right? That's the idea, the ideal, so to speak, and not to be a slave longer. He should not get so used to it that he thinks that he's actually doing something good for himself. So what I want to say here is that I, I think the Torah is trying to find this, uh, to walk this tightrope, which accepts the economic realities of the pre-modern world, uh, but also undermines the institution because it, it's, it's in nobody's interest to acquire slaves if the slave is, if there's going to be this constant rhythm of, you know, uh, uh, of emancipating your slave on the seventh year. And I think, you know, we, we, get the, we get the hint of that already back last week in the, in the commandment for Shabbat, Zachor Yom Shabbat, that we remember the Sabbath day. And then, of course, it says, you should not do any work. You, your son, your daughter, avdecha v'amadcha. So your, your male and female slave also have the obligation to rest on Shabbat. In other words, the slave and the maid servant has a taste of freedom every week. And that undermines slavery. And so built into the idea of slavery is the Torah's own way of undermining it, notwithstanding the fact that it sets out possibilities that, as you said, that the slave could actually get to like this and want to stay with the master. Uh, and in order to do that, he has to, you know, we, they, they perform a kind of piercing on, on the slave. He's got to bore a hole in his ear. But and later on, we'll get in, in the book of Leviticus, the rules, the releasing the slave on the Jubilee year. Okay, so I don't focus too much on that, but there are lots of laws in this covenant code. Um, and uh, we, we were talking about a few of them uh, beforehand. So I'm just going to, I'm going to randomly pick a few that we talked about um, and maybe uh, get your, get your help on this. So, so uh, here, let's take an easy one. It's chapter 22, verse 20. We may have talked about this before. V'ger lo tone. Velo tilchatsenu, chapter 22, verse 20. The stranger you shall not abuse. Velo tilchatsenu, do not oppress. Gerim heitem be'eretz Yisraim. Because you were, yourselves, gerim, in the land of Egypt. And so we may have talked about this in, in, on a previous occasion, but it's, it's always worth pointing out uh, that there's an ethical dimension here uh, in, in these laws. Jeremy, you want to... Look at I, I want to just look. I'm looking at the. Uh, I'm, I'm turning because I'm looking at the the this partial on, on Safari on a different computer here. And note that note in 22, uh, you know, Gerlotan, as you said, uh, don't don't wrong the stranger, don't oppress them. You were strangers in the land of Egypt. Kol almana viatom anun. Do not mistreat any widow or orphan. Im aneta aneoto. Each, each in verse 22, you have three verbs, but each of them have that infinitive absolute, um, the double, the double, which, which signifies in biblical Hebrew, you know, very serious. And so you, you would have to, and so Rabbeinu Bachi was a commentator who lived in Spain in the, uh, in the latter 13th. He was a, uh, a student of the Ramban, although maybe not personally, but in the same uh, general school and he says about this I, I don't know he may be taking this from somewhere else but he says about this if you aneta aneoto if you mistreat them at all whatsoever even a little bit that's the doubled verb uh 
And if they even give a little peep of complaint, I will absolutely surely hear. On that literary level, the uh, I think he did a beautiful job of like figuring out something unique about that verse. Even the teeniest, teeniest bit of oppression and even the teeniest, teeniest bit of a cry and suffering will elicit very, very uh, acute divine hearing and, and God will get you. So to add here to what Jeremy said, that the, fir the, the first thing to note here is that it extends the meaning of the Exodus. The Exodus is not ancient history. It's not something that happened to our ancestors, but it's something that we have to have happen today. We can't, we have to incorporate the lessons of the Exodus today by our, how we behave today, not by simply recalling what happened to our ancestors. The other thing that's important to note is what is gonna happen if we act like the Egyptian slave masters? The people are gonna cry out and that's what set the original Exodus in motion. God heard the people's cry. And so it's a kind of warning to us as well that if we afflict other people, God will redeem them from us. Wow, you give me a great sermon topic for the Shabbos. Okay, great. But my but, pleasure. Tzaka is <laughs> also it's a motif that comes up a few verses later. Look at look at um, verse twenty six, right? It's talking about maligning your your uh, the the person who works for you. No, no, a, a um, uh, the a debtor, a debtor, the debtor. Right. I'm sorry. So taking advantage of a debtor. It said, that's referring to the person's clothing. Taking advantage of his clothes. It's what he sleeps in. And if he screams to me, I will hear him. So again, we have this, this idea. This but, part of this, I, I like this part a lot. First of all, um, uh, we'll give a little shout out just to my buddy, and our, and our colleague David Rosen, who's the uh, who's executive director of the Hebrew Philon Society in New York, they always make a big deal out of Parshat Mishpatim because of verse 24 in the, this passage we're reading right now. Im kesat salvet ami etani imach loti elokinosha loti simun alav nesher. If you're going to lend money to my people, who you know this poor person who is among you, uh, don't do not act like a you know impatient creditor. Don't extort interest from them. And if you take as collateral their clothing, as you started to say, Elliot, you got to give it to them back before the sun sets because he, this is the only thing, and the Torah says that beautifully, what's he going to sleep in? Like it, it, it just speaks to you in this wonderfully um, colloquial way. What's he going to, come on, what's he going to sleep in? And, and it's interesting that, you know, I don't know exactly if I can prove this down the line, but it is, it's pretty clear to me from this and some other passages that, that um, Deuteronomy, for example, uh, it's pretty clear that tzedakah in the, in the ambiguous times was a loan, not a gift. Like we tend to think of tzedakah as the gift of money, but as this passage says, it's really, I think the baseline was alone. I, I mean, why did they, was it the case that they simply, you know, that even the wealthy people were too economically insecure? They didn't have 
401ks. They didn't have, you know, index funds. And even the wealthy people may have been too economically insecure to just give it away. I don't know if that's it or something else. But um, the principal way of wealthy people helping poor people, I think, was loans. Fascinating. It's, it's, it's all about human responsiveness and God's responsiveness. I don't know if, that, if, the, if the next set of verses really capture this idea. We talked a little bit about it before. In, that, in the context of, of the next set, which is Elohim lo tekalel, do not curse God, or a leader of your nation, you shall not curse. And in there it says, uh, it makes reference to uh, the kind of offerings that you need to make, the firstborn uh, of, your, of your flocks. You shall be people, I'm, I'm translating here, people of the holy. Not holy people, but people of the holy. And, and here, focusing on, I think it says, the first iteration of a dietary law. In other words, living your life, you have to be aware of a holy aspect of your life. And Jeremy, if you just kind of recall for us, the comment that Ramban Nachmanides on on that you mentioned it before. I don't know if you pull it up yeah. there. Before we were before we were recording, I was looking at the Ramban on that. And what what does this have to do about you know what the people of the holy that you not eat roadkill essentially yeah. um, uh, roadkills basar you know basar basadetrefa torn you know you you came across, like the whatever the 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 wolf came ripped open the sheep and there's still some some edible stuff there. Um, no, that's not the way Jews eat animals. There's a, a, a slaughtering process and, and everything. And Nachmanides says, you know, that, that there are uh, certain kinds of behaviors which just make you a crude person. They make you uh, a diminished and they, they, um, they, they leave their mark on you that you become like a little bit like an animal. And his comment is that Anshe Kodesh you should be people who are worthy of the sacred mission. And there's a certain way that you eat that, that can enhance your capacity for worthy, being worthy of the sacred mission and having it, he uses the word devekut, that you have a cleaving to God. And there are certain kinds of behaviors that, that diminish your spiritual capacity. So, uh, Elliot, you, you took a homiletic license earlier, so I will do so now. Gotcha. So the way you're reading Anshay Kodesh is that the men of the holy or the people of the holy suggests that we understand Kodesh here as a kinui, as a name for God. And oh. what it's the call is to be God's people. Yeah. And the lesson here is that in order to be fully human, we can't just be human, but we must belong to God as well. Interesting. You know, Jeremy, you're sure Anshay Chesed. Anshe Kodesh, Anshe Chesed. You're the people you of the... Of, of the... of love and kindness. Lo, the people of love the... people. <laughs> but you're the people of truth. People. And that was last week's part. That's right. I have, we have, have Anshe Emmet in our, in our name. Anshe Emmet, we're the people of truth. You're the people of love. <laughs> we're the love people. No, but you was last week when, when, uh, when Yitro gives Moses all the instructions. Anshe. He says you have to be... Anshe Emmet Sonebatsa. You have to be honest people... Who are not out for a buck? Okay, all right. So, so this is, we've dipped into into the law here, and and a great theme of of thinking about this is that all these laws are tied to human life, uh, and and you know when you think about law and you think about the way law works in in life, it it, it just builds so many stories. It creates so many stories, and and 
we can imagine, and of course the, the rabbis do imagine, they build you know, half the Talmud off of, off of this Parsha, well, it's half the Talmud, but, but major tractates of the Talmud are based on just single verses of these, uh, of these chapters. But let's go now back into the story. We're at Mount Sinai, Moses has gone up, Moses is coming down, Moses it came down, and it says, Vaisaper la'am et kol divrei Adonai, chapter 24, verse 3. Moses speaks, tells all of the words of God, ve'et kol ha'mishpatim, and all the laws, which I'm, we're going to interpret here as saying, God is, uh, Moses is relaying the commandments, the ten statements, and also these laws. And the people respond, Vayan kol ha'am, kol echad, they speak in one voice, We will do this. We will do everything that God says. So it's a, it's a kind of affirmation. It's a, it's a, I would say in the context of what's going to happen now, it's a preliminary ratification of what essentially is a covenantal statement. Okay? And then um, Moses writes it down. And we get a, this is why I, I'm so drawn to this because it's very it's very ceremonial. There's a lot of there's a lot of um, uh, you know pageantry here. Moses writes it down, gets up in the morning, builds an altar at the foot of the mountain, twelve stones, has the young young men of Israel bring sacrifices, olot and zevachim uh, meal, uh, offerings takes half of the blood, places it in basins, and another half he consecrates with, the, he uses it to consecrate the altar. He takes Sifra Brit, which is the text of the covenant, and he, he speaks it, very, very literally, puts it like into their ears. And these are, of course, words that, that are known to us. Everything that God has said, we will do, and we will give me your best translation. We will do, and we will hear, we will do, and we will obey. What do you think? Obey. Obey? Understand. Uh, understand. I, see, I, I, I'm going to go homiletical too. I think that, that semantically, uh, obey is probably right, but but understand is like you know like i i hear you that's like one of the idiomatic uses of, of lishmoa and uh i get it and and uh yeah i, I think that that it's going to lead us not only to obedience but it's going to lead us to consciousness transformation understanding right to push the homily is that we're going to do things not because we don't understand them as uh some other people have said, but we're going to do it in order to understand it, and because we do understand it. So I, I, those are I love those those interpretations, but I, I want to I've been I've been in such a literal frame of mind uh, when it comes. Well, to it's reading. a book after all. It's a book, but really, in the plainest sense, which is okay. We we didn't we didn't hear you. I we didn't get such a good listen on the first round. And and we, we got to it's it's we actually have to apprehend what you are saying. We have to hear this. Now I say we, we get the basics, but but we got to hear it again. And and maybe you know there's this term this this kind of Latin term or is a Greek term hysteron proteron, which is like 
when you say things backwards, right? Uh, your socks and shoes, or shoes and put on your shoes and socks. Okay, so that's an inversion of what you would normally say. You put on your shoes. You put it's on raining, your socks. Is raining dogs and cats? What's that? Is, is raining is raining dogs and cats? No, it's there's a there's a whole theory about this. What is it called? It's called hysteron pyron. It's like here, I die, I faint, I fall. Right, because you put your socks on before your shoes. Naturally, That's the it's point. Against the natural right. order. Okay, uh, so so um, so that this is an example of that. But but there there's something to be said in light of the the reading that I've been influenced by over the last couple of weeks, which is that they really didn't hear, and so they really want another chance to hear it. Okay, so so we're, 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 we're coming up to the end. The, Moses, the elders, and the people are, are situated now. They all have different experiences. So God, at the end of the, 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 the parsha has a coda. God says to Moses, come up to the mountain and be there. I'm going to give you the Tower of Stone, and the teaching and the commandment, that I wrote in order for you to teach them. So Moses and Joshua go, and they get up and they go to the mountain, and they leave the elders there, and Moses goes up the mountain, the, the cloud comes over the mountain, the, and God dwells, the glory of God, or the, God's presence dwells on the mountain, and the and it covers the mountain for six days. And on the seventh day, Moses, God calls Moses from the cloud. And what the, the, the presence of God looks like a consuming fire on the head of the mountain before all of Israel. Moses goes into the cloud, goes up the mountain, Moses is there for 40 days and 40 nights. So I want to make a comment here that the, the vision of the mountain as on fire, a consuming fire, is the complete contrast to the first vision that Moses has of a fire that is not ukal. And I want to say, based on, you know, Yoramazoni, he's saying that the vision of God and the bush being not consumed is actually an allegory for the way that God can live within a community. God is such a powerful presence. God is such an overwhelming presence as a fire. It can be so destructive. But God also gives life. And it's the, Judaism is all about bringing that flame and yet minding the boundaries so that you're not going to be consumed by that. You're not going to be destroyed by that. And I think a lot of the Torah can be read in terms of understanding that God is so powerful uh, and yet accessible. Right? And, and this, this, no, this played, it's played it's, itself out in Jewish, Jewish life. Go ahead, Jeremy. So I, I, like, I like that as a description of the snapback from Exodus 3. But here we are in Exodus 24, and there's a way in which you know, that, that little miniature revelation. We were talking before the, uh, the call start, before we started recording about, you know, what, what's, what's in Revelation? Is it just, you know, is it just the divine presence? 
you know, modern people maybe are more aligned to thinking that the, that mystical experience of the divine presence and, and, and maybe we're less oriented towards thinking that God, you know, at revelation gave us a book and told us what to eat and told us what not to eat and told you how to, how to, you know, handle, you know, uh, torts and, and, you know, between two people who have two fields and they, you know, uh, but here, like, Exodus chapter three with, with the burning bush, Moses gets a revelation, he gets a job, go free the slaves, and he gets divine name. I'll be what I will be. And I'm, I'm, I, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And, you know, you're going to come back and you're going to worship me on this mountain. Sne, the, the bush, is the same word as Sinai. The, the Sinai is the fuller version of the, the, the mountain of the thorn bush. If that first one was this little teeny fire in one teeny little thorn bush, this one, the whole mountain is now uh, on fire. And it's like a fully realized version of what the snare was a little hint at. And so maybe uh, on a literary level, not, not maybe on a theological level in the way you're talking about or, or a religious devotion level, that we, we are bounded within a bush that doesn't burn up, that, God, that God's presence is... Is, is managed through limits, maybe maybe on a literary level, it's there's no more limits. This is just the entire the entire mountain um, is the consuming fire. It's not one bush anymore. Interesting, interesting. I I I, I think of it also like a, in a different analogy, which is you know God is so powerful. It's like a nuclear explosion, but you can actually harness the power in a reactor, and it could it could power up a whole city. You know. And that, so the, the the vision here is that God is so powerful and that God so desperately wants to break through to human beings. And Israel is the instrument of that. And law and mishpatim and the, you know, the ma'amad ha'sinai, the, the, the tablets, the 10 statements, the 10 commandments, this is, this is the means by which we get God to live uh, with us. That That is to say, we, we, are not consumed by the fire, um, and and so so let me let me ask you this question now: the Torah, the Torah is not really known as a um, you know the a book that that fills you with suspense, but um, what we have here is a, a suspense filled moment, which is uh, forty days and forty nights are are happening here. Moses is going up the mountain forty days and forty nights. So, so um, you know what? Dun, 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 stay tuned. You know, it's suspenseful. I think. What do you think? Where is the Torah leaving us here? We want to get to the next parsha already. Well, I think we may have to wait another week or two. But, you know, so so you're you're alluding to the fact. I, I guess you're alluding to the fact that that you know Moses said there forty days, forty nights. And then he's going to delay coming down a little bit, and the people um, are going to get anxious because because he's taking so long up there in the mountain, and so they build a golden calf. Um, we we can talk about this next week, but in, in Parshat Truma, like the very next thing that happens in the Torah here in Exodus twenty five is the instructions for the tabernacle. But maybe we'll talk about this next week. But, you know, Rashi famously says. Yeah, that's not what happened next. That's that's oh, what happened later on. The okay. story tells it out of order. What happened next is the golden calf. Sure, sure. Well, forty days and forty nights is a long time to wait for your leader, for 
the person who has embodied, you know, God and, and uh, as representing God, and they do feel this kind of absence. And, and I think the last, the last verse of the Parsha, it's, uh, it's an ominous note. The Torah, you know, Parshas are not supposed to end on a downer, but, well, it's not, it's neutral, maybe. I don't know. What do you think? Barry? No, I, I think you said it best when you said it was suspenseful. It leaves us hanging, and we want to know what's going to happen next. Okay. Yeah, you know, what is at the end of the 40 days and 40 nights? Very good. Well, if our viewers and listeners want to find out what happens after 40 days, you'll join us on the next edition of Parsha Talk. We are so, so happy that you were able to join us for this week. We thank you for spending some time with us. And until... It's not going to be 40 days. It's going to be another seven days. So, until then, I want to say Shabbat Shalom. Enjoy. Shabbat Shalom.